0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Well, today I'm delighted to have Seem Lad. He's a best selling author, public speaker, high performance coach, and a professional biohacker. And if you tune into episode 73, Kelly and I interviewed him talking about biohacking and human biooptimization. He's also the author of Metabolic Tophagy, Stronger by Stress, and co author of Immunity Fix. Welcome. It's so nice to have you back.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to be back here and uh, glad to talk with you.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording was I was curious to know, you know, how COVID is impacting you in Estonia. Obviously, there are listeners from all over the world and some people may be in more restrictive situations than others, but I'm curious to know how you've been navigating uh, the past, you know, 10 months.
1: Yeah, well... um I already live in a pretty isolated environment, so I live in the countryside on like an island, and there aren't like a lot of people around me, so it didn't really impact my like uh, everyday life uh, that much. Besides, only like all the events uh, that I was supposed to speak at or go to were I cancelled or uh, postponed, so that was the biggest kind of uh, difference between previous years. Uh, But other than that, I was still you know doing my everyday things and uh, working you know online and uh, yeah, just. uh, being like in front of a computer most of the time.
0: Sounds like it's the same for so many of us not being able to travel. Have you traveled at all since last March or February timeframe?
1: I have. I've been in like Finland only uh, like two times in Helsinki. And one of them was for the like the Biomaker Summit, which we, you know, fortunately we were still able to do uh, thanks to like the uh, looser guidelines in Finland. So like we had like about like 500 people at the event and it was a good turn up.
0: Well, I'm glad that you were able to do a little bit of travel. I actually haven't been on a plane since last March. So <laughs> for me, in many ways, my family and I really enjoy traveling. And I did a lot of traveling, a lot of public speaking. And to not have been traveling at all for almost a year is kind of uh, hard to process amongst all these other changes. So I feel like your books really come at this you know, incredibly serendipitous time frame because there's so much value in the lessons that you're teaching. And a lot of what you talk about are things that people can do that don't actually cost a lot of money. So let's, you know, kind of dive into how our bodies kind of adapt to stress. You know, one of the things that I think is really important is, you know, the concept of finding balance with stress that, you know, the right degree of stress can actually make us stronger on many, many levels and how we kind of deal with it, recover from it. And then, recognizing that this actually biologically impacts ourselves in very beneficial ways. So let's talk a little bit about hormesis and, you know, the stress balance and how stress can be positive. It can obviously be negative as well. But, you know, how do we navigate this time in our lives where none of us have probably uh, had the experience of, you know, living in a pandemic?
1: Right. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, there are definitely some different kinds of stressors that we experience, whether like physical stressors or psychological stressors, and they do like cause a slightly different uh, effect on the body, but uh, there's also like this general stress response that happens regardless of the source of the stress. And usually that is, you know, characterized by elevation in heart rate, increasing cortisol, uh, and, you know, this focus and alertness. And those things tend to be happening regardless of the stress type. But if we're like talking of, about, for example, um, like heat stress, then the body also responds to the heat by trying to, you know, adapt to the heat and repair the damage that occurs. And he does it by just turning on like these specific proteins, heat shock proteins that uh, mitigate the damage from the heat. And on the other hand, some other nutritional stressors would be like, you know, intermittent fasting or calorie restriction. Those also have a slightly different effect on the body, primarily by turning on some of the other mechanisms in the body that relate to like fat oxidation or um, autophagy or these other similar stressors. So generally our body are able to tolerate different kinds of stressors and uh, it only becomes a problem if it becomes chronic or in excess. So if you find this... You know, optimal amount of stress, then you can kind of condition a body to start handling higher amounts of that particular stress the more frequently you get exposed to it. So, that, like in the example of fitness or exercise, uh, like if you're never exercised before, then you probably won't be able to run a marathon because it's going to be difficult and uh, almost impossible. Whereas if you, you know, gradually increase your endurance and the fitness, then eventually you will be able to do it. So, that's an example of like some uh, stress adaptation and uh, hormesis that a small amount of stress actually makes you stronger and uh, more resilient. And that's why I want to um, kind of apply to all these different kinds of areas of our life Uh, in my book, Stronger by Stress that we shouldn't be afraid of uh, stress. And, you know, actually I would say that trying to avoid stress all the time just leaves you uh, vulnerable to the uh, like inevitable uh, nature of life that we are inevitably going to encounter different kinds of stressors, whether it be physical uh, or mental. And the best thing to do just to be prepared and uh, gradually try to increase our exposure to these kinds of stressors as to, uh, you know, become more resilient.
0: I think it's really important. You know, I interviewed Wim Hof a few months ago, and one of the things that he felt was really important for listeners to understand is that we've become far too comfortable as a culture that we don't, you know, we like to be comfortable. So we don't like to be too cold. We don't like to be too hot. We don't wanna go without eating all day long. And certainly that's a huge problem here in the United States with rampant obesity. And so one of the things that he was really emphasizing and I hear you emphasizing as well, is that it's okay for us to get a little bit uncomfortable, that it's really, really important for us as individuals to recognize that, you know, a little bit of fasting or a little bit of cold exposure or some heat exposure is profoundly beneficial, not just to us, you know, on a kind of recognized, you know, physiological level, but even down to our cellular level. And so, you know, there's the concept of mitochondria, you know, that are the powerhouses of our cells and, you know, recognizing that it's really important that these remain very vibrant and healthy. And so I'm sure probably in your research and as you're writing your book, recognizing that for a lot of people, they don't even understand like what the mitochondria do, why they're important, why we want to keep them healthy and functioning.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, the mitochondria are, like you said, the powerhouse of the cell and the a lot of the like energy production is happening primarily through the mitochondria and also aging is affected by the condition of your mitochondria so uh, one of the most commonly used theories of aging is the mitochondrial theory of aging that as you get older then uh, your mitochondria become more damaged and they start to spread oxidative stress and inflammation and these reactive oxygen species and that's you know accelerates aging so uh, the way to kind of slow down aging and prevent like these, all these other different diseases, chronic diseases is to keep your mitochondria healthy and the mitochondria do need like uh, a small amount of stress to stay healthy. And you also need to kind of, um, clean out the uh, dysfunctional mitochondria that accumulate there as a just inevitable byproduct of uh, living so things like these beneficial stressors like exercise you know the sauna and uh, even like fasting those things they like make you grow more mitochondria but they also eliminate the bad mitochondria that are there so uh, yeah like these smaller beneficial stressors are kind of uh, doing um, like a good uh, good maintenance work for your cells. And uh, also, like if you are, let's say, not experiencing too much stress, you're ex- not experiencing any stress at all, then you are like kind of under conditioned, so to say, so you become, yeah, like I said, too comfortable and your body is very like fragile, so to say, that hasn't had the reference experience for any stress. And whenever it does encounter any, even like a smaller stress in the future, then it's just going to, you know, break. And um, because it doesn't have the resilience so you need to condition resilience uh, by like this regular hormesis
0: and what are your thoughts i know you know here in the united states there are a lot of people i call it chronic cardio people that you know, they're under the impression that they can out exercise a poor diet. And, you know, you'll see people that are running for hours and hours and hours, or they're on the treadmill or they're, you know, on the elliptical trainer. And so I would imagine that you have very specific suggestions in terms of the things that are going to stress your body in beneficial ways is very likely not chronic cardio. I'm assuming it's high intensity interval training or strength training. And and so where is the kind of tipping point for where, you know, those types of activities are beneficial for us versus, you know, it's good to walk, but that's not going to stress your body in the way that you're talking about.
1: Right. Well, I think, do think that the regular cardio can also be very good. So it depends on the goal and situation. So if you overdo it, or if it's the only form of exercise you do, then yeah, that may not be the most ideal thing. So I perfectly would, or ideally i would recommend doing both um, in some degree i personally do like prefer more like resistance training because um, you know resistance training is higher intensity and you know it also stimulates muscle growth that you don't achieve with regular cardio or hit uh, so the muscle aspect is very beneficial for just longevity and uh, better metabolic health is easier to stay lean and easier to avoid like nutritional related diseases because you have like more muscle mass and you have like a higher ability to get dispose uh, carbohydrates and glucose without experiencing negative side effects in terms of like how much cardio is good or how much resistance training in general is good you know that depends on the person and overall like their workout routine so you can effectively yeah like reach a minimal effective dose of doing only like one cardio session per week and maybe like two or three work resistance training sessions per week that would be like the minimal effective dose that most people can get away with. But yeah, like that also depends on the other things. Like you can even do like cardio every day and not experience any burnout or not experience any like weight hospitals or any hypothyroidism from that. As long as you, you know, take care of your nutrition, you're not like combining the chronic cardio with chronic calorie restriction or a like over caffeinating or sleep restriction. So it's a matter of like the individual and what kind of other things they do. So it, the same applies to like fasting as well. Fasting can be a stressor to some people but it can be not a stressor to others uh, depending on like their overall diet and uh, what else to do. So yes, it's a very nuanced uh, situation.
0: No, absolutely and I think you're really alluding to bioindividuality that it's so important for determining what really works best for you and your body. And you know, one thing that I think is really critically important for anyone who's really listening that we need to maintain muscle mass, you know, sarcopenia or this muscle loss with aging, it will happen if you're not doing things to circumvent this. And certainly for myself being in the middle age range, it's really critically important. And it's actually a whole lot harder to maintain muscle in your forties than it was to build it in your twenties and thirties. And that is kind of normally what will occur if you're not lifting weights. And as you mentioned, it's really important that people recognize the more muscle mass you have, the more likely you are to be metabolically flexible. And that's really what we're talking about. These are all things to keep us healthy and keep us at a healthy weight and ward yeah. off as much as possible disease, which I think for everyone right now, you know, given the, the global pandemic, all of us have that in the forefront of our minds, or at least we should be thinking about ways that we can keep ourselves healthier. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting that you've touched on multiple times, and certainly the people that follow this podcast know that intermittent fasting is something that I really embrace wholeheartedly, but you did touch on the fact that some people can overdo it. And I see so much of this on social media that individuals are so desire to get the effect, whether it be weight loss, or they want to tap into autophagy, or they have other reasons for wanting to be interested in intermittent fasting, and then they go overboard. And so, you know, with fasting, it's really critically important that people are getting enough of their macros, getting enough protein and fat. And obviously, carbohydrates are very bio-individual that, you know, there are people that are more metabolically flexible, so they can get away with more carbs than people who you know, are less metabolically flexible. And so how do you, you know, obviously you're an intermittent fasting expert is, you know, how do you kind of navigate or make recommendations when you're talking to people who are really trying to fine tune the fasting regimen? You know, there are a lot of people who want to do one meal a day, which I think is fine on a short-term basis, but I just don't know how most women in particular could get enough of their macros in, in that very short window. I know that there are some men that that seem to really enjoy that, but you know, what are some of the ways that you make recommendations in terms of a fasting schedule that will be efficacious and not put people in a position where they're, you know, they're really ramping up their thyroid or their adrenals or their endocrine system in general?
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, I think that intermittent fasting can be a very good tool and uh, you can yeah, adjust it based upon a lot of the things that you're involved with. Like It, it depends on your like exercise uh, routine as well as uh, just, yeah, like energy requirements uh, but like, if I were to give like a minimal effective dose, then I would say that, you know, you wouldn't, at least you would want to do like this aspect of time restricted eating that you fast at least for like 12 hours a day and eat within 12 hours, that would be like the minimal effective dose for like just the circadian rhythm benefits and sleep benefits so that you wouldn't be spending like the entire day in a fed state, like the average uh, Westerner does. So that would be like the kind of the starting point that I would recommend everyone do regardless of their, whether or not they're doing like actual fasting or whether what they want to do it. From from that i would say that uh, like the 16 hour fast is also like a really good golden balance so to say so it's a it's a it's not like long enough for you to become like severely burnt out and it's not like that short either so that you wouldn't miss out on any of the benefits so it's a very beneficial uh, way of um, you know achieving good balance between being able to you know, you tap into some autophagy and ketosis on a daily basis while at the same time being having like a long enough of an eating window where you can still um, consume enough protein and calories and you know, stimulate muscle growth uh, from that. Whether or not you should do like one meal a day or something or fast for longer than 16 hours, that depends on yeah, like the preference. So, I wouldn't say that it's uh, better to do one meal a day or instead of uh, 16 hours, uh, or it's like one gives you more autophagy or the other because uh, you know there's other other things that also matter uh, so I would say that the one meter day is something that people would do only if they like just choose to do it or prefer to do it I personally also do like you know somewhat semi one meter day, Mostly because of my, you know, preference and convenience, it's a good uh, time management thing, and I uh, like it. I do. I like, think it's very hard to build muscle uh, or strength with just one meal a day, because it's yeah such a small time frame where you stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So for muscle growth, I would say like the 16-hour fast is the perfect thing, uh, because you can, you know, stimulate muscle growth in that eight-hour ending window for at least like two to three times. Whereas with one meal a day, it's uh, relatively hard. But for, I personally. I'm able to pull it off because I'm doing like this sort of thing that I call a targeted intermittent fasting, where I do just eat one meal a day, but I also have like a protein shake during my workout, so I get still get like a second uh, spike in muscle protein synthesis and uh, uh, still maintain like a positive nitrogen balance from that. Uh, But for like other people who aren't, let's say, that dedicated, or for them, I would say the 16-hour fast is pretty good, and at minimum, if you're not even, you know, if you want to take a break or something, then 12 hours, 12 hours is also good. And last, I would say that, yeah, like one meal a day is something that isn't inherently better. It's just something that people would maybe want to do it every once in a while.
0: Yeah, I think around holidays, I know definitely for myself, if I've overindulged at Thanksgiving here in the United States or Christmas or New Year's, if we were able to be able to go out, right. um, that would definitely be the following day. That was just a way to kind of get back on track. And certainly... I think digestive rest of any capacity is definitely better than this recent statistic I read that the average person here in the states will consume a sugar sweetened beverage or food sixteen to seventeen times a day. And when you think about <laughs> the net impact mm. of what that does to your insulin response and you know fat storage, it's really kind of horrifying. And it, it makes us understand why it's so easy to gain weight if you're you know pumping into you know spiking insulin throughout the day as opposed to having it you know, kind of be more gradual and then once or twice a day when you're consuming food. I think the challenge that I see with a lot of individuals, both men and women, you know, with regard to whether their meal frequency is once a day or twice a day while fasting is ensuring they're getting sufficient protein. And I would imagine most, if not all people that are listening are not getting sufficient protein. And I know Dr. Dr. Gabrielle Lyons, a big proponent of one gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight, which You know, I would imagine most people are probably doing 30 grams, maybe 40 twice a day, if at all. And Mm -hmm. so I'm curious how you manage to you probably have a fairly good size amount of protein when you're having your shake and having that very large meal. But I'm sure that you also probably see a lot of people struggle in this area as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, protein is uh, very important, especially for uh, preventing sarcopenia. And, you know, even when doing a little bit of fasting, you do uh, tend to need a bit more protein, so to say, so that you would, uh, you know, compensate for the catabolic stress that you experience while you are fasting. And yeah, usually I would say the best ratio or the best amount would be like about 08 grams per pound of body weight or lean body weight up until like 1.0 grams per pound of body weight so somewhere between there but the like average person yeah is eating maybe half of that mm-hmm. so the rda itself is also like half of that uh, which i would say is not really optimal so yeah ideally you would want to you know most people would need at least like 100 grams of protein per day and uh, yeah to get that from one single meal then you would need to eat like a, like a really big steak or something and yeah that's why if you are struggling with gin intake or if you're you know, in the older age group or you have like sarcopenia or you have, let's say, like muscle catabolism, excessive muscle catabolism, then for you, yeah, it would be better to have some more, several meals throughout the day as a way to keep the muscle protein synthesis elevated and to ensure that you do uh, get the sufficient amount of uh, protein. So yeah, if someone is having trouble eating uh, that much protein in one sitting, then for them... Uh, you know, spreading it out is uh, more easy because, yeah, it's true that protein is also very satiating, so it's uh, fills you up and prevents hunger. It doesn't really make you want to eat again. So, if you're not able to eat your food because of eating too much protein in one sitting, then yeah, spreading it out uh, is uh, is the way to go.
0: No, and I think it's really key. You know, talking about satiety, that's a really, really important, much maligned concept for a lot of people because it, whether or not it's fat and carbs together, which are delicious, but very hard. If you think about like guacamole and chips or cheese and crackers, I mean, those kinds of things, it's hard for people to, you know, keep to a portion size. Whereas if you have protein and some fat, you will be satiated. You're literally going to feel like you cannot eat more. And so training our bodies to acknowledge how important that satiety piece is, is really, really very, very important. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, Americans spend an average of ninety per cent of their time indoors and take about twenty thousand breaths a day the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air And in some circumstances, up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets, like CNN, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, ...mold spores and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorrow.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible. So let's kind of pivot a little bit and talk about immunity. And so obviously, in the midst of a pandemic, this is really relevant. And so let's talk about what helps build a healthier immune system. I think that given the length of the amount of time that so many of us, our lives have really shifted and changed substantially, I think this is the kind of information that people will find really valuable, things that they can do you know, in their day-to-day lives that really have a huge net impact.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like a lot of these things that are, you know, considered healthy lifestyle practices, those things are also very beneficial for the immune system, like uh, regular exercise, good quality nutrition, whole foods, avoiding, you know, processed uh, carbs, uh, added sugars, and uh, these vegetable oils, as well as uh, these uh, hormetic stressors, like the sauna, uh, some intermittent fasting can be good. And like the cold in moderation, definitely like sleep. So you know, if you are like, let's say, relatively healthy and metabolically flexible, then for your immune system should also be, you know, um, strong as a result of that. And uh, vice versa, if you're metabolically inflexible, you have metabolic syndrome, you have, you know, uh, these other uh, added chronic diseases, then for your, then your immune system is also going to suffer because a lot of like, the immune cells and uh, other immune parameters are regulated by or determined by your metabolic health and uh, overall lifestyle.
0: And I think it's important again to kind of reiterate what that represents. A metabolically flexible means you have a healthy blood sugar. It means that you don't have high blood pressure. You're not on medications to deal with cholesterol problems. And you know you're sleeping well. You're at a healthy weight. And it's not about being skinny. It's just you know maintaining the ability for your body to be able to consume foods, be able to properly package them up fuel your body, sleep, et cetera. So let's start with the food piece because I always find it really fascinating when we are looking at the nutritional piece and talking about things like seed oils and how profoundly inflammatory they are and how long, they actually will, you know, impact, you know, the membrane and cellular composition of our cells for such a long period of time. I heard as long as two years, which is horrifying, but here in the States, most, if not all restaurants, that's all they use. And you look at the processed Mm -hmm. foods, just looking for just two things. Even if you just look at canola and soybean oil, it's in everything. And so you start to acknowledge that that in and of itself can drive these desires for these carbohydrate processed carbohydrate dense diets and drive insulin resistance so i would imagine in estonia you probably don't have as much of that but it's definitely a huge problem here in the states uh,
1: well i think the seed oils are also here very predominant like yeah like all the restaurants use them uh, and uh, yeah like the packaged food has it as well so yeah you know the uh, estonia is like an ex-soviet country so they like the people weren't like that interested in healthy fats or something they just use some regular seed oils as they found so yeah i think it is you know like the average person doesn't even think about that it could be harmful but yeah it is so true that uh, these uh, seed oils and vegetable oils they are like one of the most harmful like substances that you could like consume that would be considered like food so yeah the what essentially happens is that uh, these vegetable oils are like very polyunsaturated fats so they're very uh you know fragile so they uh, get oxidized very easily when they get exposed to heat and oxygen and pressure and uh, as a result of that these when you consume those oxidized fats then your body is going to experience lipid peroxidation which uh, is a way of you know describing this oxidation of fats whether that be your cell membranes uh, you know cholesterol in your bloodstream triglycerides all those things they become oxidized and uh, you know that is linked to many diseases like uh Insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis—those things happen as a result of inflammation after oxidative stress. So if you, uh, you know, oxidize your own fats because of consuming these other fats, these oxidative fats, then uh, yeah, you become very inflamed and promote uh, the onset of many diseases. And these vegetable oils are, you know, they get oxidized during the heat process or the manufacturing process, but they are also just uh, because they're polyunsaturated fats they are easily more easily oxidized than compared to something like saturated fats that have like a higher smoking point.
0: Yeah, it's hugely problematic. And I'm curious if you feel that the processed sugars are a bigger issue in terms of driving disease, or do you think it's equivalent? Because I think of them really in the same light because they're such a huge component of, you know, the processed food industry and kind of take for granted that they're everywhere. We, like much to your point, we just assume because they're accessible and easily, you know, attainable that somehow they're healthy. But as I like to remind my patients that- you know, they're designed because they're cheap. It's a cheap product that can be utilized in these processed foods. And so no one's really thinking about our health. They're just thinking about profits. And so do you feel like one is worse than the other or are they a little bit equivalent?
1: Uh, Well, I think sugars would be less harmful than these uh, fats, so to say, because uh, sugar is uh, like an actual, you know, it's a natural molecule or glucose is a natural molecule, so to say that our body already has some glucose in the bloodstream all the time in some amounts. So um, it's not inherently harmful if you consume it in moderation. And also like if your body is able to handle it, then it shouldn't be a big issue. Like if you have more muscle mass, you are physically active, you're uh, insulin sensitive, then for you, that sugar is going to, yeah, it's going to s- spike your blood sugar for a little bit. But if you're healthy, then it shouldn't last for that long and uh, your blood sugar should normalize. Which Within like an hour or something depending on how much you know sugar you ate so yeah generally the sugars and carbs i'm not of that afraid of the sugars and carbs because yeah you can like you can even like go for a walk and you can uh, lower your blood sugar in like 10 minutes and faster so it's uh, not a big issue and if you like exercise before eating sugar then the muscle cells or muscle glycogen stores have become very depleted and Eating that sugar would just uh, direct or make that uh, sugar go into the muscle cells and store as glycogen, whereas with these fats, then uh, these uh, vegetables and cereals. They don't have any essential role in the body, so they don't have any benefit, real benefit. They only cause harm. And uh, yeah, like you said, it's very hard to get rid of them. They can become a part of the cell membrane, and they can stick around for yeah, like years. And you know, as they are a part of the cell membrane, then we will also. I begin to spread that inflammation on a regular basis because your cells of cell membranes are you know very fragile and oxidized and they become even more inflammatory.
0: For everyone that's listening, I think this is really critical. You just need to be well informed. You know, read those Packages, you know, ask when you go to, to restaurants if you're able to do so, ask what's in the food because right. more often than not, I'm in a position where I'm of the belief system that I ask all the time and I become that weird person who doesn't <laughs> eat fried food right. when I go out and I generally don't eat salad dressings for that purpose. So mm. thank you. And I 100% agree that, you know, something that's a more naturally derived substance is going to be a whole lot less harmful
1: like I want to add also like you you don't need to be like that afraid of it either because our body is also able to deal with that oxidative stress uh, to a certain extent so we have our own antioxidant defense systems like you know glutathione and superoxide dismutase and uh, catalase and others that can counteract the lipid peroxidation so you know, like we're experiencing oxidative stress all the time in some amounts and it only becomes harmful if, our, if it counterbalances the antioxidant defenses so you can also you know protect against the uh lipid peroxidation of these oxidized fats by making sure that you consume like enough vegetables that contain these antioxidants and they can stimulate glutathione and other defense systems as well as like for example especially when it comes to these lipid peroxidation then like vitamin e as a supplement can protect against that which is an antioxidant a fat soluble antioxidant as well as like uh, these uh, spirulina and algae they also have this uh, lipid peroxidation protective effects
0: yeah, that's really fascinating. And I'll make sure that we include all that in the notes. So as we kind of pivot and we talked about nutrition, I definitely want to touch on sauna because there are two different kinds of sauna that I know that you employ. I try to do sauna as often as I can, infrared sauna versus a traditional sauna. And can you explain to the listeners how they are, differ? Obviously they have some of the same benefits, but for someone that's not as familiar with red light therapy that you got from infrared sauna, can you explain you know, what these do for the body in terms of immune function and other health benefits?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, generally, the uh, sauna is going to like elevate your body temperature. And as a result of that, the uh, body is going to respond by turning on like these heat shock proteins. And the heat shock proteins, uh, they start to like repair misfolded proteins. And they start to like reduce inflammation. They start to clean up house uh, with like autophagy, and they also like prevent the viral replication to a certain extent. So the sauna is just the easiest way to trigger these heat proteins. Uh, you can also do it with exercise or like just uh, working out. But generally, the sauna is going to do it the fastest. And what matters most is just the elevation of the body temperature. The traditional sauna is going to uh, heat up the air around you in the room, and that is eventually going to raise your body temperature. Uh, Whereas with the infrared sauna, the infrared wavelengths are going to penetrate uh, into your tissue and into your body, and they're going to heat up your body directly from that. So the difference between them is primarily that the uh, infrared is going to uh, kind of generate heat from the inside out. Whereas uh, the traditional sauna uh, makes makes you um, hot uh, from the outside in, if that makes sense. So the infrared sauna also is going to like penetrate deeper into the tissues, and it can trigger collagen synthesis in like the tendons and uh, joints, and also um, trigger like this small beneficial stress to the mitochondria and improve their functioning through that whereas with the traditional sauna you get the temperature hotter in the traditional sauna and you may also get like more sweating from the traditional sauna and like eliminate these uh, metals but uh, the infrared sauna is less hot but it may have like a more direct effect in terms of like the heat proteins because of um, going deeper into the tissue and uh, also just having like this additional benefit of maybe better skin or better uh, joint health
0: And do you feel like there's a minimum amount of time that people need to use these therapies for them to be beneficial?
1: Yeah, well, um, some of the Finnish uh, research uh, finds that like doing it more than four times a week is the most uh, you you see the greatest reduction in cardiovascular disease and uh, mortality but uh doing it even like uh, once or twice a week is also very beneficial so but, but yeah like i personally would say like you know as, as much as often as you can as a, because most people don't have like their own saunas, so uh, they may get to it only like maybe once a week or maybe once every other week but uh, even then it's uh, kind of worth it when it comes to like the individual sessions then uh, the uh, heat shock protein response tends to start at around like 15 to 20 minutes somewhere around that and uh you can maybe potentially speed it up if you have like higher temperatures, uh, but you generally uh, like doing it for at least like 15 to 20 minutes would be like the minimal effective dose. And I personally, usually if I do go to the sauna, then I do like at least two rounds. So I'll do like 15 to 20 minutes uh, per one session. I'll go out, maybe wash off the water a little bit and do another 15 to 20 minute session.
0: What do you think about doing cryotherapy in conjunction with doing infrared sauna? Because I've found for myself personally, I'll do, you know, two and a half minutes in a cryo tank, which is kind of popular here right now, and then do infrared sauna, so I'll warm back up. But I, I'm curious to know if there's, you know, can you do these sequentially? Are there benefits from doing them completely separately, or do you potentiate the benefits by doing them one after another?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, well, there also hasn't been like very specific research about that, but generally, you know, the colds and uh, colder temperatures have also their own benefits, like cold is also like lowers inflammation and like reduces uh, neuronal stress and is beneficial for the immune system. So uh, yeah, both can kind be of beneficial. Uh, doing them together like sequentially, uh, that's yeah something uh, we don't really know whether or not it is optimal. I personally do enjoy first going to the sauna and then taking like the cold plunge or something cold soak uh, because uh, it kind of feels really good and kind of helps you to maybe go into the heat for longer. Uh, you know, Dr. James uh, did uh, think that you may not want to do the cold immediately after the uh, sauna because of uh, like when you are in the sauna, then you're, you know, triggering the C-chark protein response, your body is experiencing the stress. And if you go to the cold, then you may just... uh, turn off that uh, signal. Sort of, so, you're, so you're making it very easy for your body to deal with the heat. Whereas the kind of the point of the entire sauna is to kind of <laughs> endure and kind of uh, you know broil yourself uh, in there a little bit and kind of endure it for longer. So if you just take the cold immediately after the sauna, then you're kind of uh, shutting down the kind of response. So he he would do it in a way that he would take the sauna and maybe like take a cold, cold soak maybe 30 minutes or an hour later something like that. I personally, I'm not that worried about that because I do think that you already get some, you know, sufficient amount of heat proteins when you are already in a sauna and doing, doing like a short cold is not going to be probably too problematic. But yeah, like if you want to be maybe very safe and secure, you, then you can do the cold before and then go to the sauna to heat back up. So in that case, you would probably get, you know, the kind of best of both worlds.
0: Well, it's interesting. On the days that I do cryo and infrared sauna, I sleep even better, even though it's hours later. It's amazing how I feel like it's incredibly restorative. So we would be remiss if we didn't touch on the sleep piece, how important it is, not just for overall hormetic benefits, but also the immune response. So let's like talk about sleep, because I think that sleep is thought of as... Well, I think of it, the average person really thinks of it, they undervalue how important it is. And yet it is one of the most important things. I remind people all the time, if you can't sleep through the night, do not even attempt to fast, <laughs> that it's right. that firmly rooted in foundationally where we should be. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh Sleep, yeah, is something uh, I think would be like the foundation to health and longevity. That sleep is when your body is repairing itself and rejuvenating. Sleep is also the time where your like adaptive immune system gets developed. So, say like immunological memory, uh, kind of you experience these different infections and antibodies uh, during the daytime, and unless you kind of install or store them in your immunological memory, you're not gonna be have this. uh, you know, immunity towards those things in the future. So let's say you have an, a compromised adaptive immunity and all the like uh, immune cells that get rejuvenated during sleep. Uh, so if you're like chronically sleep deprived, then you have like just a weaker immune response to everything and all like autophagy and melatonin, they have like these antioxidant effects on the body that eliminate uh, junk cell parts and uh, other, other particles that are not supposed to be there. So yeah, sleep is very important. And uh, especially yeah, like if you were to be in like a, during the winter or something when your immune system tends to already be slightly compromised, then I would yeah, recommend to um, sleep a bit longer or at least make sure that you do get the quality sleep.
0: Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kebaka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic Maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans-resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered No, I think it's so critical. You know, what I found really interesting when I was preparing for this was really thinking about the things that can help us sleep more efficiently. And, you know, first and foremost, reminding people that sleep's foundational to our health. And it's really important for, as you mentioned, you know, the helper cell production and, you know, optimizing our immune response. But what are some of the little hacks that you have found about supporting sleep? I mean, I know... In the back of my closet, I have an acupuncture mat that I should be doing before bed, but I don't necessarily do it every night. But I even saw in the book, you know, kind of like mouth taping and, you know, watching your caffeine. But what are some of the things that you find most people are surprised by that can help support sleep that are fairly easy?
1: Yeah, I think the general uh, just uh, being wired up and being too energized in the evening is probably the biggest uh, hurdle. So if you are You know, watching uh, news, you're on social media, you're you know watching some sort of a movie that is uh, keeping you up. Then that is just uh, not your brain doesn't have like a reason to think that it's uh, supposed to sleep. So winding down is a good idea, and avoiding like these all these uh, stimulating activities, especially like caffeine and uh, maybe sugars or something that spikes your blood sugar. Then um, the blue light, uh, the artificial light is also very underrated, and uh, most people aren't even aware of that that the blue light from your uh, screens that is directly inhibiting the production of melatonin the sleep hormone so if you are like watching tv or watching a computer right before bed then you're signaling your body that it is daytime and therefore it's not supposed to be time to sleep uh, so using some sort of uh, filters is very important and these uh, blue blocking glasses is a really quick fix so if you start to use like these uh Glasses uh, an hour or so before bed, then you will naturally see that hey, you're actually getting tired and drowsy, uh, whereas before it was just um, masked or uh, you know hijacked by the blue light that was uh, keeping you stimulated, artificially stimulated, and naturally like we would go to bed like after sunset. It's just that in the modern world we have all this uh, technology that is uh, keeping us up. Uh, some other things would be very important would be also like when it comes to actually sleeping better, not falling asleep, then it would be uh, sleeping in a slightly cooler environment. So um, colder temperature is also uh, like a signal for melatonin production and helps to uh, go into deeper sleep. So if you're in a like really hot uh, bedroom or you have like central heating on and uh, you're using like very fluffy blankets, then uh, yeah, it's, you're elevating your body temperature, which is um, not helping you to sleep better. My research does find that, most of the, you know, usually sleeping in a slightly cooler bedroom is a better for uh, oversleep.
0: I think my entire family has gotten used to the house being 65 degrees at night, which, you know, everyone sleeps so much better. So something yeah. so simple can make a really yeah. big impact on, you know, how well we sleep. Now, One thing that I think I've gotten a lot of questions about, because obviously before we connected today, I was asking people on social media, what would you like to ask? And so what I found interesting was, there's a lot of information, some of it largely unfounded, that's out on social media and on the web, but what in your research with you and Dr. James, when you were writing Immunity Fix, what are some of the key nutrients that we need to be getting into our diets, into our nutritional kind of regimen that would be beneficial for supporting immune function? Because I, I feel like some of the information I've seen, I have to question, but when I was going through your book and you know going through questions that people were asking me to ask you, this one came up multiple times. So it's obviously an area that people are intensely curious about
1: yeah yeah absolutely nutrients all these minerals are very uh crucial for just the body's uh, defense systems and one thing i think like virtually almost everyone does need is magnesium because uh, first of all like magnesium is uh very like depleted from our food sources because of uh, soil depletion and erosion so on estimate there's about like uh maybe 20 or 25% less uh, magnesium in our food compared to like the 1940s. So uh, in, that in of itself does, you know, increase the risk of um, becoming deficient in magnesium. And uh, yeah, like about like 80% of the people are not getting the recommended daily allowance of magnesium, which is about like 400 to 500 milligrams. Mm. Magnesium itself is a uh, regulates like the it has like a role in almost every process in the body like starting with energy production and the immune response so in terms of like the actual immune response then magnesium deficiency can like offset the balance between certain immune cells like the t cells so if you have magnesium deficiency then it can cause like these autoimmune conditions And because of the the body's immune cells between like killer T-cells and helper T-cells because it's offset uh, out of balance and the body just uh, starts to attack itself and uh, cause additional inflammation. There's also like this uh, one, you know, we discovered uh, was that there's people who have like um, genetically low magnesium, then uh, they experience this chronic Epstein-Barr virus, uh, which is called like the X-Men syndrome. So that is something that we saw that, yeah, the magnesium is... um, very uh, involved with the immune response then i would say that the very beneficial nutrients would be you know vitamin d because of uh, like a similar role it's very involved with almost every process in the body and in the immune response it also like vitamin d helps to recognize you know these uh, infectious particles and uh, eliminate them then uh, there's uh, like selenium which is good for like glutathione uh, zinc which is also you know involved with breaking down these uh, infectious particles as well as involved when in autophagy. So yeah, generally I would say the most important ones would be like magnesium, uh, vitamin D, selenium, zinc, maybe like vitamin C as well. Although like with vitamin C is that I wouldn't recommend like taking it all the time in like a large amounts, vitamin C would be something that you maybe resort to if you ha- actually have some particular like a uh, infection that you just want to get rid of faster. Then you like, then you introduce the vitamin C to kind of help to um, deal with it faster.
0: Now, do you recommend that people get food-based sources as well as active supplementation? Because I know here on the East coast of the United States, you know, we may get a lot of sun exposure, probably April through maybe October. And then when the weather gets cooler, it's a whole lot harder to get more than just your face or maybe your hands exposed to get that vitamin D synthesis. So... For a lot of my patients, I'll say, okay, maybe summertime, you don't have to per se take a supplement, but definitely as we head into the cooler months where there's less light exposure, it can be you know, definitely beneficial. And I, the other piece that I, this is oftentimes how I can get my patients to do it. I remind them that there is some role of insulin sensitivity with vitamin D as well. So if your vitamin D levels are low, not only does it impact, potentially impact immune function, but can also impact your metabolic flexibility as well.
1: Yeah for sure like uh, ideally you you would want to get them from food uh, but uh, yeah that's not always uh, possible especially when it comes to like magnesium or vitamin D you could potentially get like all the zinc and selenium if you eat like uh, some oysters and uh, organ meats and maybe like brazil nuts uh, on a regular basis and then you can cover those nutrients uh, with magnesium magnesium is usually in like you know leafy green vegetables some seafood and uh and like some nuts and pumpkin seeds, those would be some magnesium foods. But yeah, like I would, a magnesium supplement is something that I think a lot of people would need. And I personally also take it on a regular basis. And with vitamin D, I don't take a vitamin D during the summer if I'm already going outside. But during the winter, I do take it because of, you know, there's virtually no sunlight for for weeks in, in here. Uh, So if I do take the vitamin D, then I don't like macrodose it uh, because my vitamin D levels tend to be already in the normal uh, zone. If you are like very deficient in vitamin D, then in the short term uh, going for like a higher dose supplement can be good. Uh, But uh, you would also maybe potentially want to be eating these vitamin D rich foods like uh, egg yolks. Uh, Salmon and fatty fish uh, and even like some mushrooms have it, uh, but in the the D3 form. But if you do take like a vitamin D supplement, then you would also maybe you would need to uh, take or at least get enough of uh, vitamin K2 to make sure that the vitamin D gets used in the right way. And magnesium is also important for actually activating that vitamin D.
0: Yeah. And for full disclosure, I take magnesium every day. I'm a huge proponent of magnesium and think it's really critical as well as selenium. And obviously during winter, I'm absolutely supplementing with vitamin D, but as you said, food-based sources as well. Now, before we kind of pivot off and, and I let you go, I think it's important to kind of touch on at least briefly what impacts immune function in a negative way. And I think for many people listening, they may already know some of these, but I think it's worth reiterating given the fact that We're still in a pandemic and I'm sure people are anxious to avoid things that could non-beneficially impact their health.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The the immune system is connected to like your metabolism and just general health as well. So if you are with metabolic syndrome or these chronic uh, conditions, then uh, you would just try to, um, you know, <laughs> do the best you can as to uh, improve your metabolic health as fast as you can. And it doesn't take like that long time, you can even see like a better, um, you can see like these uh, optimal blood sugar reductions um, within like a few weeks. So you we just have to start and uh, start eating the good diet, start doing regular exercise. Uh, not eating. If you are like very poor metabolic health, then you would need to take like your uh, carbohydrate restriction more seriously compared to someone who is like uh, lean or athletic. Then they can get away with more without experiencing the bad side effects from that. So it depends on where you're at. But generally, yeah, like just uh, making sure that you're you're like insulin sensitive and you have good metabolic health in terms of you don't have high blood sugar, fasting blood sugar. You don't have high uh, triglycerides. You have good enough of HDL cholesterol. You also have low blood pressure. Those things are. Characteristic of uh, metabolic syndrome. Then uh, I would say that uh, the second most important thing would be to uh, get enough sleep, uh, or like sleep deprivation and sleep restriction, uh, or just you know suboptimal sleep itself would be um, jeopardizing your immune system. And maybe lastly, I would say that the inflammation in general, like this chronic inflammation, whether because of uh, being sedentary or uh, eating a bad diet or just you know consuming these uh, vegetable oils that are oxidized.
0: Thank you. That's super helpful. Now, before I go, we're starting something new this week on a couple questions. I'm going to ask each guest at the end of our interview. And so I'm curious how you define wellness. You know, what does that mean to you as an individual?
1: Hmm. Well, uh, wellness, uh, I would say is uh, being at peace or being at ease, both physically and mentally, so So you don't have any chronic pains, you don't have any like uh, aches or something uh, you're, you know, in good fitness, and you're also like mentally at a good place. So you're not experiencing any negative thoughts or you're not experiencing this rumination or like this depression or anxiety.
0: Great answer. What's the latest book you've read or are currently reading?
1: Like, well, at the moment, I'm listening to an audiobook uh, by, I think it's uh, Jared Diamond. Um, I think it's Upheaval or something, which talks about like why civilizations fall or something. Like, I don't you're remember the exact timely. title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He wrote the book, like, The Guns, Germs, and Steel. So it's another one of his books.
0: Okay. And what's the number one thing you want the listeners to really understand about our discussion today?
1: Maybe... Yeah, like uh, you should kind of live this uh, hormetic lifestyle that you engage yourself in these beneficial stressors uh, on a regular basis because, like, the same applies to like muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. So, if you don't stimulate your body to uh, be fit, uh, then you're going to lose your fitness. If you don't stimulate like the heat adaptation, then you're going to lose it. Uh, yeah, like all the stressors. If you don't, if you live in a like a bubble wrap, uh, then uh, you're losing your ability to, to tolerate stress. Whereas if you are, Uh, engaged in them in the right amounts and you recover from them um, appropriately, then uh, you will just uh, get used to it and get stronger.
0: Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you again. Thank you so much for carving time out of your busy schedule.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with
1: us online, visit the link in the show notes.